if anything, regardless of what you think about Stephen Cohen's views, the way he was treated is not just disgusting and disrespectful, it's indicative of exactly what he'd been arguing his entire career. You know, now with Russia back in the news, it hasn't exactly translated into any more funding from the state through the university system. I would say, and I've said repeatedly, that scholarship coming out about Russian history today and, and Russian politics to some extent as well, anthropology certainly, is better than it's ever been. Welcome to The Naked Pravda. I'm your host, Kevin Rothrock, the managing editor of Medusa's English Language Edition. I'm recording this on Friday, September 25th. And on today's show, we're looking back at the career of historian Stephen Cohen, who died a week ago at the age of 81. Though he became quite infamous among American Russianists in his final years, particularly since 2014, thanks to his views on the Ukraine conflict, which often dovetailed with Kremlin talking points, Professor Cohen was perhaps best known professionally for his 1973 biography about Nikolai Bukharin, the Bolshevik revolutionary he believed represented an alternative path for Soviet socialism that derailed into collectivization and mass violence because of Joseph Stalin. Cohen had similar misgivings about Boris Yeltsin undoing Mikhail Gorbachev's Perestroika. This week, Medusa published an obituary written by Ivan Karila, a professor of history and international relations at European University at St. Petersburg. For another perspective on Cohen's legacy among Russia scholars, the Naked Pravda turns to historian Sean Guillory, who earned his PhD from UCLA in modern Russian history and has blogged and podcasted intensely about Russia for the past 15 years. He's also now digital scholarship curator in the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh. I asked Sean about the significance of Cohen's work on Bukharin, about Cohen's place in American policy debates about Russia, and what his passing means for the study of Russia in the United States. His biggest contribution seems to be this book he wrote about right. Bukharin. Right. What's so, what's so special about it? Well, what's so special about the Bukharin book, and, and I think it's important to put that book in a larger context. So it was first published in 1971. And this was a time where uh, Russian studies was uh, dominated both in the social sciences and to a large extent in the humanities, particularly political science and history where the totalitarian view of Soviet society and so the Soviet state was dominant. And this is the idea that the state controlled usually through one figure, i.e. Stalin, uh, controlled all aspects of Soviet life. And this, the society itself was, was atomized and were incapable of not only providing any politics or any influence on the state, but also could not mount any kind of resistance to it. And that understanding of, of totalitarianism, but also Stalinism in particular, was the idea that the Russian Revolution of 1917 inevitably ended up into Stalin. So there was this equation where Lenin, Marx plus Lenin equals Stalinism. And what, what Cohen's book on Bukharin did, and, and there were others at the time looking at, you know, this question of was Stalinism inevitable? 
And Cohen was one of the principal people who, who looked at the possibilities of alternatives in the 1920s, and he focused principally on Nikolai Bukharin. Is that a natural selection, or did he kind of pull that out of a hat? No, I think it was a natural selection, because usually when you went, when you looked at the various political alternatives that, within Soviet Russia uh, after Lenin dies in 1924, the tendency was to look at Trotsky, right? And it was the, the you know, the Trotskyist analysis was that Trotsky was the true heir to Lenin and Stalin, because of, you know, his machinations or whatever, was able to, you know, get rid of Trotsky and eventually have him killed in 1940 in Mexico. So what Cohen did, instead of going a, doing at a, a Trotskyist uh, analysis, he looked and to see what other major leaders at the time that had influence that could possibly be an alternative Leninism to Stalin. And, and the idea, I think, what, what was, and I think this is really at the heart of Cohen's work throughout his career, and that is he really wanted to not only emphasize, but rehabilitate the more, what he saw as the more humanist aspects of Leninism, but the Soviet system in general. I mean, you can, you can draw this line really from his Bukharin book all the way up to his writings on Gorbachev and Perestroika and the collapse of the Soviet Union. And for him, Bukharin represented a more gradual, some would say even market socialism. Because if you, you know the history of the Soviet Union in the 1920s, the debate by 1927-28 was to go full-throated industrialization and also collectivization, or to continue the new economic policy, which was a mixed economy of the state having the commanding heights, so socialism amongst the, the major industries, but then a private market amongst small businesses and the peasantry. And so Cohen argued in his biography quite forcefully that this more humanistic, gradual, true Leninism uh, was represented in the figure of Nikolai Bukharin. How philosophical was, was, were his writings about Bukharin? Was it, was it that this was a viable alternative, like kind of in terms of, I don't know, philosophy or, you know, in terms of like ideas, or was it that there were just a few, there, there was this particular moment in history when someone made this choice instead of this one and Bukharin lost? How did Bukharin lose out? Well, like did Cohen argue that Bukharin nearly put the USSR on a different course or that his ideas could have put him on a different course? Well, yes and yes. So, a, it could have, because honestly, we don't know, mm -hmm. <laughs> right? Because he was eventually arrested and shot. But but what Cohen argues, and this, this, I think, draws the link between his Bukharin book and, you know, Cohen's long relationship with Mikhail Gorbachev and, and Perestroika and thinking about Perestroika. He consistently maintained the idea that though Bukharin, the figure of Bukharin was annihilated, Though the Bukharinist alternative uh, in the late 1920s was beat out by the Stalinists, Bukharinism continued in some form or fashion in different configurations throughout the whole Soviet period. So, for example, he saw, you know, Khrushchev's reforms as a potential legacy of Bukharin in a different context, but also showed basically the idea here is that Bukharinism represented the ability of the Soviet Union to reform into a more humanistic socialism with a human face. And so, so, so to, to draw that line, he elevates and emphasizes the importance of Bukharin 
in the 20s and then through and throughout. And and this is important because like I said before the debate had been between Trotsky and Stalin. Now, okay, you can argue yes, uh, maybe the heir to Lenin would be Trotsky, but Trotskyism doesn't necessarily represent a a, a more reformist even social democratic trajectory. It's just a different form. It's a radical form of Leninism, right? So for those who are dissatisfied or disagreed with Trotsky and Trotskyism, they wanted to distance themselves and find a different alternative. I know that Cohen is described as as one of the revisionists. Right. Can you say a little bit about, I mean, I know you've already explained that that around that, around the 70s, was it in the 70s that the revisionists take kind of take take over or they they get stronger late 70s and into early mid 80s and that is essentially in america is it specific to um, the Amer- american historians or is it broader than that it's broader than that okay because you have people you have people like for example stephen wheatcroft and rw davies in britain you have moshi levin in in france you have gabor ritter in france who are doing similar work. Sheila Fitzpatrick, of course, is originally from Australia. She starts her work in Australia, though moves to the United States. I mean, I, actually, she went to Oxford, if I'm not mistaken. So she was in Britain and before she moved to the United States. So it's, a, it's definitely a wider Anglo-European historiographical trend. And that's, the move, that's the move away from viewing the USSR as, as a totalitarian state where the where society and individuals have no agency right and and that's the that's the primitive, that's the the prime idea is to you know basically the question became how do you have a social history of the Soviet Union and this of course comes in the wake of a development of social history in a variety of different historical periods and contexts uh, so the question of course you know okay if you have a social history of the soviet union then what role does society play in that system right and so you had you know people reading sources differently looking at different sources you really utilizing the the little archival sources that were available my advisor arch getty was one of the principal players in that in terms of the revisionism of the terror but cohen's place in that is actually quite ambiguous how so well the, so the the is he not a revisionist he is to some extent but not others because one of the things that the revisionists some of the more, I would say, radical ones argued is that if you look at Soviet society, and all of this is around the study of Stalinism, right? So if you look at Soviet society in the 1930s, you could find popular support for the regime. And so, for example, one of Cohen's students, Lynn Viola, in her first book, Best Sons of the Fatherland, looking at collectivization, focused on the role of workers in collectivizing agriculture. So, though Cohen was a revisionist in the sense of moving away from a principally Stalin, Marx plus Leninism equals Stalinism, and that, you know, Stalin was the only outcome, he maintain some distance from the more social history. I mean, he was trained as a political scientist, but more of the social history because the social history also implied that you had the regime had some kind of popular support. Whereas he, it was his position that the regime was this sort of, it, it was not the true path, that it was a kind of detour they weren't meant to take. It, yeah, it was a detour. It was, you know, Stalin was a usurper, things like this, right? So, but if you argue like there's popular support, 
then the implication there is that Stalin actually has some kind of mandate. Mm -hmm. And also the violence under Stalinism also has some sort of popular support, participation, uh, and, you know, to push things to its conclusion, some kind of mandate, some kind of democratic, you know, in the broadest sense mandate. What about the relationship between, so you mentioned that the the revisionists and this sort of rethinking of research about the Soviet Union and our understanding of Stalinism and Soviet socialism or communism. This is happening in the 1970s. The 70s is also the era when, when detente kind of is, the, is a buzzword in American foreign policy toward the Soviet Union. Is there a relationship there that, that we should be seeing? Very much so. And, and this is right. So if, you, if you're Cohen and you're arguing that the Soviet system has this underlying current of reformism has this underlying the humanism of you know marxism maintains in some form or fashion uh that the perversion of the stalinist system is that a perversion it's not the real path then that op- if and, and you open up the soviet system to possibilities of reform the question then becomes well what is then what is the relationship between the united states for example in the cold war to the soviet union now, if there is possibility for the system to reform, and this is what Cohen argued and continued to argue, then you should engage that system, right? The best policy toward dealing with a you know hostile Soviet Union or a revanchist Russia under Putin was full engagement. And what does that mean exactly? Because he certainly didn't mean send in the Peace Corps. No. And... And and send cookies to Navalny's people on the ground or whatever. Like it's that's it's not what is so what is what is the engagement full, of full full engagement uh, means. I mean, similar to what we had in the detente in the seventies, which is the Soviet system or the Soviet Union, let's say, is recognized as a world player with its own interests, both national and foreign interests. It has the right. I mean, you don't have to agree with it, but they have a right to a sphere of influence because they see that as a great power. And all of the the, con- the the disagreements, the conflicts between that system or that state and other countries shouldn't be dealt with with a isolationist or military posture or even a regime change posture, but a posture of mutual engagement. So it could mean anything from cultural exchange to constant dialogue on the diplomatic stage. It was a, you know, I, you know, I would say, I don't know where Cohen would have stood here, but I would say, you know, really utilizing international institutions rather than mere bilateral relationships to deal with conflicts, utilize the United Nations, etc. And this line of engagement, you know, and we saw this in, in, in the latter years of Cohen's career, uh, this line of engagement that he had already in the 1960s and into the 70s, he maintained throughout. And I think a lot of this has to do with his own brand of leftism, right? He was, you know, Cohen was on the American left, but it was America. It's an American left that really is based in, you know, that grew out of the Cold War that I think, you know, and we can talk about this in a bit, but I think became, has become more incompatible in a post-Cold War 
era. Incompatible. How? Well, the idea is, is that if you deal with, say, let's say, talk about the Cold War, you have this, you know, binary world, United States and Russia, to prevent mutual destruction because of nuclear weapons, you have to have diplomatic engagement, right? Military posture only ends up to, you know, with everyone dying. And so each side checks with the other, right? So the United States can't do anything unilaterally because they have to deal with the Soviet Union's interests. The Soviet Union can't do anything unilaterally too extreme because it relies on the Americans. You know, right, you have a, a, a kind of global balance between these two powers. Since the collapse of the Soviet Union, it's interesting that Stephen Cohen had, had a certain congruence with Russia hawks in the sense of the idea of a new Cold War between the United States and Russia, right? But that world, it's, it's where we don't live in a binary world. We live in, I mean, if you want to, from a leftist point of view, and this is the view that I subscribe to, the world today is more in line with pre-1914, where you have competing imperialist powers rather than a binaried world of United States or in Russia or United States and China. So I think Cohen's part of his positioning in terms of U.S. engagement with Russia as these two powers that are in struggle was based on the idea that a Russia could check American power. So, for example, you know, I mean, I'm not saying that he argued this, but you can see how, say, Russia's intervention in Ukraine is a check against American influence on its Western borderland. I mean, you know, my view of that is that, no, you have competing imperial powers. <laughs> it, it doesn't, it, it's a different left-wing analysis. And I think that that left-wing analysis that he held, and, and, and unfortunately you see this quite prevalent, is, is one that's based off the enemy of my enemy is my friend. So I'm against certain political things in the United States. I'm against its foreign policy. Therefore, I, you know, tolerate, look the other way, justify, you know, the, the Russia's ability to check uh, aggressive American power. Did you ever cross paths with, with Cohen personally? Unfortunately not. From what I understand, he was a bit of a curmudgeon. <laughs> <laughs> yes, he does. He did have that reputation. Um, I did try to interview him um, a couple of years ago. I wanted to do this kind of what we're doing now, a kind of retrospective on his career and, and, um, and look through his work you know, from his early work to his more recent work, but it just, it never materialized for a variety of reasons. I know that some people, I, I won't name names, but I'm aware that some people kind of were a bit suspicious of him, not so much for his, well, certainly for some of the things he, he wrote and argued, but also because he was very wealthy, as I understand it, which is kind of amusing that he, he, he was such a devoted leftist, I, I suppose, but he, he, he's married to Katrina, uh, how do you say her name? Vanden Vandenhuvel. Vandenhuvel, the you know the the at at the Nation and the heiress to the MCA Records fortune. Yes, but but you know the Nation obviously being like a a, a a pillar of of kind of the leftist leaning American media. So it's kind of this like I don't know kind kind of complicated landmine of of. Uh, cultural and and social well kevin we're, uh, sig signifiers kevin we're not monks <laughs> <laughs> uh-huh well so stephen cohen certainly wasn't no no and and i have to say one of the things and this goes to some of the i i would say kind of disgusting controversies in the last couple of years relating to him is that you know he and katrina vanden because of the 
you know, the lack of or the shortfall of funding of Russian studies and the ability of graduate students to do research, to get money for research and the cutting of federal investment in Russian studies, Katrina Vanden Heuvel and Stephen Cohen, through their CAT Foundation, has provided an endowment for, you know, research through the American Association for Slavic and Eurasian studies. I can't remember. <laughs> ACES. Yeah, ACES. Thank you. It used to be called AAAS. Yeah, it's yeah, ACES uh, to provide, you know, grants to graduate students to do research. And then there was the scandal with the Cohen Tucker Research Fellowship, right? Right, right. So can you explain can you explain the scandal cuz so basically from my understanding he he forked over a ton of money. Right. And said, I want my name and the name of my late advisor on this thing. Right. And it's, and it's going to fund um, dissertation research. And then a lot of people were like, take your name off that asshole. And he's like, screw you. <laughs> it's my money. I mean, do, take it or leave it. Right. Yeah. And that, and that's the thing. I think this is one of those moments where, so they've been giving the Tucker prize for best dissertation for a while now, but it was just a prize and no money or, well, there, no, there was a prize with money and the money was modest, but they also wanted to have a dissertation fellowship. So this was the the Cohen Tucker dissertation fellowship, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, yeah. And and the controversy, you know, came because here him and Vanden Hoover were offering this scholarship, rightly wanting Cohen's name on it. I mean, this is totally standard in all sorts of funding schemes throughout academia and university system. Mm -hmm. But because of his commentaries in the context of Ukraine, this became controversial. And there was an effort of academics and others to prevent ACES from accepting this fellowship money with Cohen's name on it. So he became, because of his outspokenness, uh, he became politically toxic, which, I mean, frankly, is, I, I find completely ridiculous and, and really a low point, I think, in, in, in the field over this controversy. And when, when ACs finally agreed to just take the, take the money and keep the name on the, the fellowship, did some, did some people leave ACs or what was the- I, I, don't, I don't know all of the in, behind the scenes ins and outs of what happened, but the fellowship is there. Yeah. But it, it goes, it speaks to another thing, I think. Do people who win it have to like make a point of saying, you know, Slava Ukraine. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Maybe they get maybe they get a personal meeting with with Putin and a internship at RT. I don't know. Uh -huh. okay, <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, but but this this moment actually speaks to something that that you can trace throughout Cohen's career and and one of his complaints and something that he advocated in the night from the nineteen seventies on, and that is the need for pluralism in Russian studies. And he always maintained a position as as an out, you know, as a um, contrarian. A contrarian, thank you. Yeah, as a contrarian. I mean, his whole idea of alternatives, and he's he's done this not only with Bukharin, but he also has written about perestroika and whether the question of the Soviet Union being reformable. So that that contrarian view was always part of his career, and. And at this moment, you know, after 2014, where, you know, for all intents and purposes, he stood alone publicly. Now, there were lots of people behind the scenes who weren't willing to put themselves out there. And you can see why. I mean, I think if anything, regardless of what you think about Stephen Cohen's views, the way he was treated 
you know, called a useful idiot, called an agent of Putin, all of these things is not just disgusting and disrespectful. It's indicative of exactly what he'd been arguing his entire career, that if you step outside the party line, you get punished for it. And thankfully, Cohen isn't, uh, you know, an assistant professor. Cohen isn't someone because of, you know, the fortune apparently that he and Katrina Van der will have aren't reliant on employment. So in, in a way, he should be admired at the end of his career where he doesn't even have to do this stuff that he steps out and tries to point out a different view, regardless of what you, you know, think that view is. I don't even think you need to explain what you mean when you say there's that much pluralism in American thinking on Russian foreign policy when it comes to, say, actual decision makers. Right. But is it true in academia as well that there is, is uh, a, l- a lack of heterodoxy or is that the word I want? That's, I think, one of the great ironies is that actually there is a lot of pluralism in the academic arena. So does that mean also that was there a split at some point when, because Russianists originally emerged as sort of like an appendage of the state, is that right? That they kind of, yes. and then they, they, they drifted away, but as we saw in during, during detente, which I always want to say is detente, but it's like al, al dente, it's <laughs> diplomacy al dente, but it's detente, I'm certain of that. Uh-huh. So even then, Cohen is apparently, if not like, I don't know if, if he's like on, on the phone with, with uh, Nixon or something, but he's, his, his views are clearly influencing actual decision-making, whereas it now seems more common, at least my impression is like if you're a Russianist, you, you don't assume you have, that your, your writings are resonating in DC or something like that. Has the field kind of lost its, not its way certainly, but lost, I mean, if anything, it's gained a way, but it's lost its, uh, its influence in actual, among actual decision-makers? To be generous, to be generous, I would say that the influence is more diffused. You know, you don't have like like Cohen did, and I just read this this morning in this book, Know Your Enemy, which is a history of the Russian studies field. I forget the author off the top of my head. I think it's David Engerman. Cohen testified to Congress in the 70s. It, it could have been an interesting confluence of his academic and political views and that of the Nixon administration, right, where a detente was on the table. So that could have, you know, opened up possibilities for him to have influence. He certainly had a close relationship with Mikhail Gorbachev throughout the 1980s, you know, late, early 80s and late 80s. Apparently, the, he, like, Gorbachev actually, like, approached him at a gathering of some kind and was said something like, you're the guy who wrote the Bukharan book. I thought you'd be older. Right. <laughs> it just blows my mind. Can you imagine, like, Donald Trump walking up to a scholar and being like, oh, I read your book. I expected you to be older. Right. Like, just that, that conversation is just, <laughs> what planet are we on where the, the world leaders are reading scholarly books and coming to conclusions about their authors? And- right. And, and, that, and you know, that that's the thing. Like, Bukharan, the Bukharan book also provided a, an ideological and a historical basis for Gorbachev, right? Because he could reclaim, right? He can reclaim this humanistic, you know, socialism, a human face and say, look, Nikolai Bukharin is a representation of this market socialism. Nikolai Bukharin was a, you know, advocate of, you know, NEP. So you can make that argument. But but now, nowadays, I think the influence of Russian studies is more diffuse. It's, it's not so direct. It's conversations maybe at conferences with people. Maybe it's behind the scenes in terms of like email or phone calls or meetings or things like this. But on the official policy level, I mean, the people who you see are testifying 
publicly in front of Congress or people who are writing the op-eds in, you know, the Washington Post or the New York Times. You can see that there is no pluralism in opinion. In fact, there's very few actual Russian experts involved. You know, in the last couple of years, you've seen a, a whole crop of people coming out of the woodwork claiming to speak about the internal politics or foreign policy of Russia without even knowing anything about Russian history, the language, etc. Um, and, and I think there's two, two reasons for that. Um, one is I think there's not a lot of interest. Trump has only exacerbated uh, something that was already a symptom, that expert opinion isn't necessarily desired. And I think a lot of scholars, and, and this is just from conversations I've had privately, they don't want to put themselves out there. They don't want to deal with the shitstorm of social media. So they're, they're willing to maintain a position within their own cluster of experts or environment of academia and go from there. But you were saying that there is, you think there is pluralism sort of not publicly in American academia. Does, the, does that pluralism fall into different camps or is it all new leftism or how, like, how would you divide, subdivide that? This, this is actually a really interesting development that I wish would get more attention in terms of kind of scholarly identity. You know, in the 1980s, when you had these young scholars of revisionists, you know, people like Arch Getty, Lynn Viola, Sheila Fitzpatrick, etc., you had a clear divide between, you know, totalitarians and revisionists. Like the field in general, for better or for worse, broke down around these major arguments about the nature of the thing that they studied. And you had similar things uh, in Imperial Russia history, but it wasn't as strong. Since 1991, in the opening of archives, the role, the, the mission of the field, there doesn't seem to be a mission because it's so fragmented. Now, on the one hand, I would say, and I've said repeatedly, that scholarship coming out about Russian history today and, and Russian politics to some extent as well, anthropology certainly, is better than it's ever been. There's so many great books, there's so many, you know, I feature a lot of them on my podcast, just wonderful, wonderful scholarship. So there is no camp, right? A lot of the questions that, you know, people like Stephen Cohen were dealing with, or Sheila Fitzpatrick were dealing with, or even what Richard Pipes was dealing with, aren't questions really anymore. Nobody is, is interested, they seem to be settled on, you know, or not care, which is fine, you know, what is, why Stalinism, for example, people are on to different subjects. And I, and I have to say that, you know, it's a really positive move in many respects because of that diversity of subjects and really painting a fuller picture of that history. But on the other hand, when Russia comes back into the news and is seen as a hostile country, by American political establishment, the question then becomes, well, what role does all this expertise play? And, and there, I think, is where the contradiction is, is that you have all this great scholarship, but you don't have a lot of influence and you don't have a lot of willingness to, to influence. Is the lack of willingness specifically or exclusively because they don't want to get beaten up or ostracized on social media or in the headlines? Or is it that Russian historians or just American scholars of Russia 
do they follow I mean, in your, just in your personal experience, the people you, you talk to at conferences and whatnot, or that you interview, when, you, when you're talking off mic, do people seem to have much interest in, would they want to participate in debates about contemporary Russia if there were these consequences that you've described? Or is it that they don't care? I think there are a lot of people just don't care. And, that, and that's totally fine. Um, I, I think they're doing their thing. They're researching yeah. their story and that's what they care about. Right. And they're already, I mean, you know, academics are already over overworked. <laughs> so, you know, this is just to, to be public about one's, you know, ideas about Russia today is just another, headache. another job that nobody, it's another headache. Mm -hmm. Right. And nobody's particularly paying you for it. Right. But I do think that there are some people who would develop into that. Yeah. I think there's people who would be a little bit more vocal and you do see sometimes this where some, you know, Russian scholars or Russian historians write op-eds in, you know, Washington post. I think you might have more engagement along those lines Maybe not like direct, like, you know, policy advocacy, but you certainly would probably have more public writing. I mean, the other thing, too, is like, let's be honest here, not everybody's ready for prime time, right? Like, <laughs> uh -huh. Right. But what about like, so what about, I guess, like, neither of us are exactly spring chickens anymore, but do the, like, do this the new generation of Russia scholars, like, aren't they... TikToking and whatnot, like why aren't they getting out in front of this on their social medias? <laughs> why are we? Why are we podcasting and tweeting more than like the twenty somethings? Uh, I, I don't know. I don't know, and I, I I certainly can't say. I mean, you know, also being not being a spring chicken means you have a more distance from those people. Mm -hmm. uh, so I don't know what's on the minds of of um, you know young scholars today. I mean, except to say that uh, there are just not a lot of jobs out there. So a lot of them aren't even staying with Russian studies. You know, they're getting their degrees and moving on. I mean, this is the other part of the story where, you know, at least in the Cold War, you had some kind of financial commitment to, to building this field. But, you know, now with Russia back in the news, it hasn't exactly translated into any more funding from the state through the university system it certainly has resulted in a bunch of grants about, you know, monitoring Russian social media for trolls and things, mm -hmm. but actual deep hit research on Russian society and politics and history and, you know, arts, that's not, you know, it's, it's less and less. And we're now entering a, a period where that generation of revisionists are retiring um, you know, Arch Getty has retired. Lynn Viola has retired. Sheila Fitzpatrick has retired. Uh, and uh, Ronald Suni has retired. All of these people who came up in the 80s, you know, Stephen Cohen is dead. And those those positions aren't necessarily being renewed. Mm -hmm. You know, Arch Getty, re he retired now, I want to say, almost five years ago. And UCLA has not replaced him. And from my understanding, there are real no plans to. So if you if you don't give these experts a home besides, you know, the rat race of think tanks, scholarship and knowledge about that place will suffer. In terms of passing the baton and, and Stephen Cohen's kind of place in the field, do you see anybody poised to sort of take that place? Because I, well, I guess one reason I ask is that last, last month, Politico published these two kind of contentious open letters from groups of U.S. diplomats and scholars that uh, kind of assessed Russia's or America's current Russia policy 
And you know, the first one has been described as kind of this letter from realists who are saying, you know, we got to just deal with what we got here and not wait for pie in the sky to descend and Russia to become democratic. And then there was this follow-up from what you, you could describe them as hawks or liberals, or I don't know what you want to call them. There are fewer of them, I noted, but um, in, the, in terms of signing the letter, but uh, the, arguing that actually can't work with Putin, he's a monster and you know just got to wait it out essentially and freedom will win the day. There's no third letter. And presumably if there were ever going to be one, Stephen Cohen would have been the one to write it or at least sign it. Is there anybody that comes to mind now who who could who would do that or who would who would who would be top of that initiative? Nobody I would think of. Um, Are you gonna? Would you write it? Uh, no, because uh, I I kind of I mean on a personal level I just kind of got bored with all of this. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, I mean I'm certainly sympathetic with the first letter, um, just because I I don't see where the second letter is going to take us <laughs> except for i don't know status quo and getting worse right it just doesn't but stephen cohen didn't sign the first one no 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 why why would that why did that one not resonate with him um he was still alive i don't know why um and i don't know if he was ever approached about that probably they wouldn't have wanted him on the, the it's signature. possible it's possible that that was a political you know that was also a political decision to not approach him because he he is considered or he was considered so toxic amongst certain quarters uh and they didn't want you know the taint of being called you know useful idiots and things like this but i think it also it also just speaks to a lack of imaginative thinking in general where it's polarized between these kind of realists and hawks and no, you know, forget about a middle way, just an alternative new way is not even being conceptualized. It's one of those cases where I think the thinking on Russia is sorely needing a breakthrough beyond the institutional ideological cage that it's in. Unfortunately, I I don't, given the political situation in the United States, I I don't see that happening uh, for a while now. If at all, I mean, you know, we've kind of been waiting for it for <laughs> for for decades now. We'll get it when President Navalny is elected. Yeah, you know. <laughs> uh huh. Good. Or installed. Yeah, or whatever. Right. Either way, who cares? I have to say that I, I, when I heard he died, um, I was actually expecting a lot more uh, dismissal and lack of appreciation of of his work and legacy. Um, and so, to my surprise, that has not been the case. Uh, and and I think I think you know thinking about his work and not just the Bukharan book, but really. You know, I mean, the fact that, you know, I don't know how many people recognize he wrote a book about gulag survivors. You know, people he met and interviewed through his connections with uh, Bukharan's wife. When when a person like Stephen Cohen passes, I think you have to, to, to really evaluate him and his place. You have to look at his entire career and his, his entire work. And to really kind of understand where he stood on things and, and what, how he got to the, tra- the trajectory that he went 
uh, in in the last couple of years. And that's despite my own, you know, criticisms and disagreements with some of his stuff. But you've been listening to the Naked Pravda, an English language podcast from Medusa. On today's show, we heard from historian Sean Guillory, the host of the SRB podcast and the digital scholarship curator in the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh. Sean and I discussed the legacy of American-Russia expert Stephen Cohen, who died on September 18th, 2020, at the age of 81. The Naked Prophet is a podcast from Medusa, and I hope you'll recommend us to your friends and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're tuning in to help put this program in front of more people. Thank you for listening and come back soon. Mm-hmm.